Hey, it's David Weiner, writer and director of In Search of Tomorrow, and you are listening to The Graveyard Show. Welcome to another edition of the Graveyard Show podcast. I am your caretaker, and the graveyard is open. Uh, excuse me for one second, folks. David. Yeah, David, we're back. Come on. Come on over. Sorry, folks. I just had to get the attention of David Warner, who you heard at the top of the show. He is here for part two of his interview. Uh, we're talking about his uh, new film, In Search of Tomorrow, uh, the documentary on 1980s science fiction films. Uh, David was kind enough to just kind of hang here in the graveyard uh, after our last podcast, and uh, I just wanted to get his attention. So while he makes his way over here, it, is that a shovel in his hand? I think that's a first. Um, well, while he makes his way over, uh, why don't I fill you in uh, regarding uh, the pre-order for In Search of Tomorrow? So if you're just joining us for the first time, uh, as I said, In Search of Tomorrow, it is a uh, new, uh, just under five-hour uh, documentary about 1980s science fiction films. And Creator VC is accepting pre-orders for In Search of Tomorrow, uh, but it's for a limited time. So it's from right now... Uh, through March 27th is the cutoff. So if you're listening to this afterwards, sorry you missed out. Uh, but um, on the previous podcast, uh, I went through all the different perks that you could purchase um, for the pre-order. But uh, instead of doing that again here, I'm just going to direct you to the website, which is 80sscifidoc.com. That's 80sscifidoc.com is where you can go. Uh, 80s S-C-I-F-I-D-O-C.com. Just go to that website and you can see all the different perks that you can uh, purchase for uh, the pre-order of In Search of Tomorrow. Uh, I've seen the film. It's great. Uh, This podcast, David and I are now going to talk about the film itself. So uh, here he is, just in time. So uh, my guest is back and it's time for us to pick up the conversation. And uh, joining me here is uh, David Weiner, who's been uh, kind enough and gracious enough to just kind of hang out here in the graveyard uh, since our last show. So, David, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I've been I've been digging a couple uh, plots just, you know, for for future members of the graveyard. And uh, I hope you don't mind. You know, there was a shovel right there. And I just thought, well, while I'm waiting, might as well dig. Well, you know what? And we appreciate that here in the graveyard. That was very kind of you. Thank you so much for doing that. That's great. I, I'm, I try and be, you know, a community player. You know, if you're going to let me hang out and, you know, listen to my own thoughts in the graveyard, <laughs> Well, let's get into talking about this great movie that you put together in Search of Tomorrow. Um, so what's interesting to me is right off the bat was something that I never really truly appreciated. And, and you guys uh, get right into it, is how much the original Star Wars helped shift the science fiction film from being um, kind of bleak or really socially conscious to fun, uh, which then mm-hmm. sort of bled right into the 1980s. Was so that something that you already knew going into this, or is that something that you just kind of learned while you were putting the film together? Well, I kind of lived it, but you don't really realize it until you see you know, all the movies that come after in the wake of Star Wars. Um, I think I think there are generations of people, whether it's our generation who, who were there when Star Wars first came out, or people who have sort of lived with Star Wars as a sort of never-ending franchise that's now owned by Disney. Um, they are kind of, maybe, they've heard it all, arguably. But uh, when you're doing a movie about 80s sci-fi and all the films that came out, which is such an influential decade, it, it cannot, cannot be... Uh, Star Wars cannot be underestimated. It, it, people need to be reminded of how much of a phenomenon it was. And, and without going into the pop and circumstance of the phenomenon, when Star Wars first came out, I think most importantly, people, the filmmaking uh, community, they just saw dollar signs. And, and they saw opportunity with these dollar signs, with uh, advances in, you know, with ILM and visual effects technology creature effects technology that was also being plundered in for the horror genre. 
all of a sudden people realized they could put all this stuff together and their imaginations could meet their wallet and could meet something for the big screen to entertain many and maybe even become, you know, something with sequels and a franchise yeah. or just make lots and lots and lots of money. And so you can't underestimate, well, I, you know, I like to focus on the escapism and, and, the, and the imagination, you know, it's, a, it's the film business. And so people saw optimism and, and, and more people wanted to pay for the optimism than they wanted to pay for the pessimism. And so a lot of the movies reflected that. Although there really were some, you know, some dark things that happened during the 80s, you know, in our real life. Yep. And that was, you know, bleeding into the movies that we were watching. What's interesting to me is that you have Star Wars, which came out in 77, and then this other little science fiction film called Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which came out the same year, right. Steven Spielberg. Yeah. Talk about two very different type of science fiction films. And then two years later, you have, again, two more... Um, very different science fiction films. You have uh, Alien on the one side, and then you have Star Trek The Motion Picture on the other. And right. you have these four films that lead into the 1980s. Um, what I enjoy about your film, I mean, there's so many things that I enjoy about your movie. Um, one of the things that really kind of caught me right off the bat was you pay um, uh, homage to the science fiction films that came before the 80s and you did it in this wonderful montage at the beginning and you kind of go through the decades quickly but but long enough where you can enjoy it mm-hmm. um was that something that you thought after the fact that you were going to open the film like this or was that something that when you when you started planning this movie that that was sort of like um something that you had thought about doing right off the bat I never originally uh, conceived of it being as part of the the montage in the beginning. Uh, That's something we usually come to later. Uh, uh, But I always intended to open up with some sort of chapter that uh, either focuses on or at least addresses film history and and the shoulders that all these films stand on in the 80s. Um, I just think that's crucial. I'm, I'm a film geek. I went to film school, uh, I'm, I'm a student of film, and I'm, I'm just a, an appreciative audience. And uh, at the, I, even though it's not uh, a deep dive in the very beginning, I think it's very important to create the context that uh, filmmakers were inspired by the films that, that they saw as kids. And they started putting them on the big screen. And so you look at Spielberg and you look at Lucas, they were very much inspired by the movies that they saw when they were kids. And uh, I think you need to sort of uh, at least tip your hat to the fact that sci-fi, that people might not realize it goes all the way back to 1902, in the beginning of filmmaking with George Millet, you know, and the trip to the moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think all these elements are very, very important to sort of set the stage. What I like is that you didn't start with the obvious film for 1980. And I'm not going to give away what movie you start with. But you did something very interesting leading into that film, the first movie of 1980 that you focus on, is that you bring it to a modern day time where you show the advances in science that have come from movies like this from 40 Mm -hmm. years prior. Was Again, was that something that you thought of during the post process or was that something that you thought of when you were in the planning? Well, there's an element that I do when I outline these movies. I, I like to start with well. I should stop with the well. That's a bad habit. Well, um, there's an element with all these films uh, when, I, when I approach how I'm going to break them down, uh, where I outline everything in the beginning in terms of what I want to talk about. And uh, one of the elements are the themes uh, of these films. And when you're talking about the themes of the films, a lot of it goes to cautionary tales, what if, uh, you know, technology, uh, uh, reflections of of the the sociological problems that we experience on a day-to-day basis. Um, And it's sort of, you know, pick of the litter of what you can talk about when you only have so much time in each film. But when I look at something and I, I want to sort of establish what the major themes are of the decade. I think advancements of technology, you know, the personal home computer, uh, you know, weapons technology, all this stuff was in our face alongside Rubik's Cube and MTV 
you know and so these are the kind of things that i think you need to start laying the foundation very early on from the you know your first step into this movie so you can understand that we're trying to cover a variety of uh of perspectives you know when i read comments online on certain sites um especially when when it pertains to 80s is that people say oh you know what what a great decade what a fun decade what great times and yeah there was and as you and I just mentioned um, there was a lot of serious stuff happening during the 80s as well that kind of gets glossed over um, mm-hmm. one of which was, one of which of course is the Cold War uh, which we're kind of mm-hmm. going through right now um, but you know we had the Cold War you know of the 80s between the United States and Russia and yep. nu- nuclear war you know was always right there I mean it, it was very prominent during that time because it, it was a very real possibility um, I like that you touched on it and you gave it enough time uh, to really kind of get to the meat of the matter. Was there a fear that when you did it that you would maybe put too much and focus too much on that? I wouldn't say there's a fear, but I think it's a good question because uh, it's, it was, it's always important to remember what the, the focus of this film is about. And I'm talking about the focus of a five-hour film. Yeah. But, you know, the idea is to provide a larger context of what was going on in our lives as well as on on the big screen. And also, uh, you know, why we were escaping to the big screen. What were we escaping from? Um, So it's important to sort of, you know, I do a chapter on on these Cold War elements, I think is very important. When I was revisiting the films of this era, uh, it really came back to me how pervasive uh, this threat of nuclear Armageddon was not only in our lives but reflected on screen you know and you know we were kids who saw the day after on television you know and and we're informed that nuclear war doesn't just make us all disappear even though we don't want it you know it's really bad and there's after effects and that there's a long long painful uh, life after this that nobody wants and so I, I think that is very important to, to reflect in a film like this. I was really happy to see that you did mention the day after in, in your film because, uh, like you, I mean, you and I are a couple of years apart. So I remember when that came on TV. And, I mean, you're talking about an era of, you know, where you had a movie like Roots, which was just, you know, everywhere. And it was such an event. Um, mm-hmm. The day after, I remember being, was very much like that as well as a one-night movie. Um, and, of course, Nicholas Meyer, who uh, made that film, would go on to you know, be very prominent in the Star Trek series. Um, but it was interesting that um, I did not know that President Reagan had seen that film, and it affected him, but it affected him in a good way in terms of seeing what a nuclear war was capable of doing. Yeah. He believed he believed that there was a winnable nuclear war, and uh, and that that movie, the day after, without spending too much time on it, um, for those of us who saw it, a uh, hundred million people saw it in one night. It was it was the, the most watched TV movie ever, and everybody was uh, afraid of it, anticipating it, talking about it ef- afterwards. I remember talking about it in school. Uh, with the teacher, it was almost like a, a psychological assessment afterwards to be able to sort of work through it and, and its impact. And so everybody was talking about it. It was on the cover of magazines, uh, and and it it it's one of those one of those amazing moments when when media can impact the trajectory of real life politics and uh, decision making. It, it, it's pretty incredible. People don't really talk about it much these days. Yeah, it, it, yeah, they really don't. Uh, that's why I was so glad that you brought it up because it, 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 it was—it's necessary, even though it wasn't a feature film per se. It, it, it was such a landmark movie and so important socially for for everybody. And, you and know, I have to say, well, I want to just interject that it's just uh, having Nicholas Meyer in my film is just an absolute dream come true. And so, yeah, not only did he direct, you know, Star Trek The Wrath of Khan, which is uh, arguably the best Star Trek movie ever, 
um, you know, and, and, and sequels that he wrote and directed as well. But, uh, you know, the fact he did time after time. Uh, yeah. But I, I, when I sat down with him, I realized and remembered that he was the director of uh, The Day After. And, you know, that just adds an incredible amount of value uh, to this film. Yeah, a very underrated filmmaker, I feel. It really is. Uh, time after time. And he's, a, he's also, a, he writes Sherlock Holmes novels, too. He has a new one out. Oh, out. oh I'll have to find that. <laughs> it's a plug. He's a smart guy. He's he really is. Guy. Time After Time is great. I, I, it was just on Turner Classic Movies not, about a month ago or so. I missed it and I wanted to watch it. I hadn't seen it in ages, but it's such, it's such a solid movie. Um, speaking of Wrath of Khan, Wrath of Khan is part of the uh, Year of Excellence, I guess you could say, 1982. Right. So you have Wrath of Khan. I mean, talk about a series of different movies. You have Wrath of Khan. You have The Road Warrior. You have Blade Runner. You have Tron. And you have E.T. Talk about the <laughs> spectrum of science right. fiction. And what I loved right. is that... And I and I I went back and I missed it the first time because I was taking notes and uh, I love how you used the door opening from Close Encounters of the Third Kind to sort of introduce us into 1982. Mm. <laughs> it was really cool. Uh, I don't know if that was done on purpose or not, but it was really cool. Um, well, the, the uh, Ian Nathan, who's one of our uh, contributors, he was the executive editor of Empire Magazine in the UK, and he's a very accomplished writer. Has written biographies for uh, Ridley Scott and James Cameron and written books about Terminator and Alien. He's, he's wonderful. Um, he is part of a collective when we talk about world building in these films and the importance of world building and concept design and, you know, costume design and production design. And um, one of the things he talks about is, is how when you're building worlds, your imagination the filmmaker could never achieve exactly what you imagine is just beyond that door, you know? And yeah. uh, Close Encounters is the perfect sort of illustration of that. Um, when, you, when you look at 82, was there a, a part of you that just wanted to kind of really kind of do a deep dive into that year? Or, was it, or did you have to really kind of restrain yourself and kind of just put the brakes on it? You're talking about a guy who made a five-hour movie who had to restrain himself for the five hours of the film. So that's my answer to that one. True. Uh, ironically, ironically, uh, uh, I struggled more with the amount of films that I wanted to cover in 1984. Um, because as the 80s really started gaining momentum, there are just more and more really well-known and really influential and really amazing and really fun sci-fi movies. And so by 84, there were just way too many. And I, I had to make lots of digital, very difficult decisions. Uh, I mean, I even put segments together that just didn't make the cut. And I had to, you know, kill some babies. It was very, very difficult. Yeah. But 1984 was probably the biggest, uh, um, you know, it, the carnage was in that year, definitely. Yeah. I, c I could tell that you were a Star Trek fan because you really did a, a, a nice setup for Wrath of Khan by going back to the motion picture and what a disappointment it was, especially when you're talking about two years after Star Wars. And Yeah, and I, I'm going to stop you there and just interject that when you say disappointment, uh, I, I want to clarify that it was, a it was a box office hit, but it was a kind of a critical disappointment. Uh, it, it, I, I don't know. I feel, I feel it's very important sure. not to malign <laughs> sure. Star Trek, yeah. the motion picture. Um, but it can't also be denied that uh, after coming after this movie, uh, the whole franchise was in jeopardy. Yeah. They really had kind of one movie to make it or break it. Yeah. And you have Harv Bennett who comes in and basically resuscitates it and then brings Nicholas Meyer and, and the rest is history. I mean, I, I, I never really realized how important, you know, when you talk about Star Trek of the modern day, I guess you could say, you know, you talk about Harv Bennett, Nicholas Meyer and Leonard Nimoy. They're sort of the, 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 the trio that really they're the architects yeah. of sort of the of the longevity of the big screen franchise and the reinvigoration of the series you know star trek the next generation would not exist without the success of star trek 2 the wrath of khan yeah it really wouldn't you know and the success of star trek 3 and 4 after that uh that that paved the way oh we can, people love star trek 
it's doing really well at the box office. It's time to bring it back to television. Yeah. Um, and, and the Star Trek that we know and love now, with so many offshoots and Paramount Plus bringing in even more, epi- you know, uh, series uh, to the small screen or the big screen in our living room, um, it, it, it all owes a massive debt to the success of this one film, if you really ask me. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I mentioned to you previously, Wrath of Khan is everything to me. That's the movie that got me interested in getting into the entertainment business. Um, it made me a hardcore Star Trek fan. I remember buying mm-hmm. the novels when they would come out. Um, I had all the different books that were based on the movie. Um, I was obsessed with Wrath of Khan. <laughs> I used to be able to tell. I used to be able to recite the entire movie from beginning to end with sound effects and soundtrack included. Oh, that's great! I mean, I am such a Wrath of Khan geek, um, and. Um, it's just, yeah, I mean, Wrath of Khan is just everything. I liken it, It's to me, it's like the gold finger of the Star Trek series, right? It's the movie that kind of changed <laughs> right. everything, right? It became, it turned it turned Star Trek from the TV series into the feature films, and it, and, it, and, it, and it influenced everything after it, whether it's the Kobayashi Maru, the uniforms, the military portion of it. Um, you know, I can go on and on. Well, having, having Walter Koenig, you know, Chekhov in there talking about it, having Nicholas Meyer, you know, who wrote and directed this and, and, and his approach to it, you know, having Adam Nimoy, son of Leonard Nimoy, talking about his father's mindset, you know, in yeah. terms of making this film. Having Ike Eisenman, you know, midshipman uh, Peter Preston uh, and his perspective, you know, walking on as his, you know, a sci-fi geek himself being able to be in a Star Trek movie. Um, it's just invaluable being able to piece this together uh, from their perspective as well. What I love about your movie is that you also talk about the, the term geek and what it means to be a geek. And one of the quotes, I, I think I got this right, is, geeks didn't want to be Luke Skywalker. They wanted to be George Lucas. And it's so true because, I mean, there's so many of us that wanted to know how the sausage was made. Um, how, 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 how important was it for you to kind of broach the subject of the geek? Well, I think making a movie like this, the biggest challenge is, is providing new insights and new avenues of information when everyone already knows everything about these movies you know we are we are now bona fide geeks who have who have dissected all this stuff till there's no nothing left but bones uh and that's i say that in a very positive way mm-hmm. everyone is just so into all of this stuff that we've, we've we've minded for as much information as is available to us whenever there's new available we we jump on that like a bunch of piranhas uh, we want to know. We want to know all the details. And so, you know, this was an era when uh, it's a pre-net internet era, right? You know, and so magazines really kind of were the only place to go. You know, so, you know, Starlog Magazine, Premier Magazine, Cinefax, Cinefantastique. Uh, it was a real treat uh, to have um, Kerry O'Quinn, who, who was the co-creator of Starlog Magazine, to talk about why this was so important. Uh, Craig Miller, who was uh, who worked? Who was a publicist and a marketer, and an all-around everyman at uh, at the early days of Lucasfilm when that was first starting. Uh, he, he wrote. He he created the Star Wars fan club in '77, and he wrote Bantha tracks and created that. Mm-hmm. Um, they all understood the need that, uh, and, and George Lucas understood the need that uh, in order to sort of keep the life of the film alive in between films, not only did you have toys and, 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 and tchotchkes to play with, but you wanted to read as much as you could, you know? And this is, again, a whole different time, uh, but it is sort of the beginning of, you know, novelizations where the characters are going on adventures that we never see on screen, you know? I mean, I was the first to buy Splinter of the Mind's Eye by Alan Dean Foster and, you know, Han, Han Solo at Star's End, because I wanted to see where these characters were going while I was waiting for another movie. You know, I read every, I bought and read every single Marvel Star Wars comic, because after the Death Star blew up, you know, we wanted to see more adventures with our favorite characters. You know, but at the same time, we were reading about the special effects. You know, was this a model? Where was this filmed? How did they film it? How did they do this movie magic? How did they create this world? Because apparently they had a, a limited budget. How do you do that kind of stuff? 
you know, our minds sort of reoriented and directed at all that kind of stuff. And so you're getting me all excited. <laughs> well, it's funny because like I, like I just mentioned uh, earlier that, you know, I would buy the Star Trek novels in between the movies back when, you know, that was really all you could get. I, I also remember getting the best of Trek uh, novels that would have all of the articles in there um, that would discuss stuff like, you know, Klingons, or what did this mean in this episode, and stuff like that. You just kind of just geek out on it. It's just like you yeah, you could there. buy blueprints. Oh, you could yeah. buy blueprints of the bridge. Yeah. you know, we were getting the Star Wars sketchbook. You know, with Ralph McQuarrie art and uh, and and looking at, at all of that kind of stuff, where we were just like, we wanted to know what didn't make the final cut. Yeah, like, yeah. That was the first time in my life that I, I, you know, I wanted to know what the alien looked like before H.R. Giger. And his design was the final alien, you know? Yeah. I, I ate that stuff up. You know, we had photo novels or movie, you know, movie books where, you know, whether it was uh, Close Encounters or whether it was Outland or Alien, you know, you had these wonderful books where you could relive the entire movie, you know, page by page, scene by scene, and rather than just reading it in a novel, you could see it uh, in a book. And that was before you could just rent it and, and put it in the, the you know, the video Player. Yeah, we 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 just soaked all this stuff up. Anything that was available to us to to live in these worlds when we weren't watching them on screen. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I physically recorded on cassette Wrath of Khan so I could hear it when I wasn't watching it because we didn't have uh, a VH. I think it wasn't on VHS, and I somehow was able to get it when it was on like Cinemax or something, and it would be the blurry image, but you could still hear it. <laughs> we smuggled this massive tape recorder, you know, into the theater and recorded Star Wars and Close Encounters. Uh-huh. And I play that tape and sit and listen to it in my bedroom and, and dream of yeah. the movie that I had already seen five times and ten times. Right. I mean, it really is incredible. What I love too in your film is that you, like you did in in Search of Darkness, you um, you do have a small feature on visual effects and 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 practical effects and. Mm-hmm. I, what I love is that you know you take the time to to feature these these artists because it is amazing, especially again going back to Star Wars. You know when you think about everything that was done to to make that movie and make it look great, um, it was incredible. And and the, how did you get the B roll uh, of all of the behind the scenes stuff? Well, you know, uh, I, I went to Dagobah and Yoda had this tape, and he said, <laughs> "Don't tell anybody." Now, it's very important, you know, just all these movies, uh, you know, you, you go to a variety of sources to get the, uh, the supporting imagery. Um, and it's all driven by, you know, the likes of Dennis Murin and John Dykstra and Phil Tippett, uh, you know, John Knoll, who is, uh, you know, uh, effects supervisor uh, at, at ILM. I got to go to ILM, you know, and sit in ILM and talk to the ILM masters, you know, about the origins of this stuff. Um, you know, it, it's it, it's a way to support and tell the tale. Um, you know, Steve Johnson uh, is another one. Uh, um, you know, uh, who did who created Slimer and he did amazing uh, millions of effects that we know and love. Talking to Matt Winston, the son of Stan Winston, who is so incredibly knowledge, and he, he runs the, uh, the Stan Winston School now, which is for burgeoning uh, makeup artists to learn the craft. Um, to have their stories to talk about the practical effects, the visual effects, and the the onset of uh, CGI, you know, yeah. uh, Nick Castle, you know, director of Last Starfighter, talking about why they chose uh, to use the the digital effects, which were the first ones ever uh, in, in a film, you know, beginning to end for all the you know the spaceship battles, you know, what are the choices behind? choosing this as a brand new technology versus traditional and usually it comes down to money mm-hmm. but um you know a lot of people looked to last starfighter and said well this might not be there yet but this is you know an omen of things to come and uh the people at ilm stood up straight you know and they they, they took note and they started implementing it themselves they were smart and it's just a fascinating tale yeah i mean they were really smart and it goes back to also when tron was made how ambitious that movie was and the rumors Absolutely. that were coming out when that movie was being made it was like you know is it going to be good what's it going to look like and yeah i mean it's incredible when you think about from well, then to now what's great about films like tron 
and films like Jurassic Park is that these are watershed moments in special effects, but it's also a bit of a misperception of how many brand new digitally, you know, envelope pushing effects are in there. Because Tron, the majority of effects uh, were were painted in. It was basically that's an animated film. Uh, it's a Disney animated film. They 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 every single you know once they're in the land of the computers there's maybe 20 minutes of of, uh the cutting edge cgi effects that they started but the rest when they're running around in you know in the computer in tron land basically uh that's all painted hand painted cell by cell they they sent them to taiwan where a team of, of artists painted all the cells all the outfits all the uniforms all the all the colors uh it's it's just mind-blowing because the perception is that it's all computer generated but it's not you know and the same thing with jurassic park the perception when that first came out because everyone said wow these dinosaurs look so real they said well it's all cgi we all now have to do cgi but a tremendous amount of the effects are practical mixed in with the cgi uh for jurassic park you know stan winston you know created life-size dinosaurs and so when you have a a deft mixture of the practical and the uh you know computer effects the computer generated effects people believe that they want to believe that it's all computer generated and so it's interesting you know we're kind of tangential here but it's it's part of the story because it all originated in the 80s. You know, young Sherlock Holmes, The Abyss, yep. Tron, Last Starfighter. You know, even Star Trek IV, uh, there, there's some elements in there. And so learning about those and, and understanding the impact and influence those had, you know, uh, Flight of the Navigator. You know, it's important to talk about that stuff. Yeah. Um, one of the things that was bittersweet seeing was uh, Ivan Reitman on, on screen. Yes. Um, and I'm wondering, as a filmmaker, uh, looking back at that, uh, how special was that for you now, looking back, being able to... It was special it. then, and it's, 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 it's more uh, shocking to me now. Yeah. You know, because I, I sat down, you know, he invited me to his, his home in Montecito, uh, and I, I got to spend some time with him, and he was very gracious uh, inviting us over you know, to sit down and talk about this. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, in addition to being this amazing director, he produced a lot of really great stuff. You know, he produced Heavy Metal. He produced uh, Space Hunter, (laughs) Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. And I got to talk to him about that stuff in addition to Ghostbusters. And that was why it was so important to me to be able to include him in this. And the fact that he said yes was just amazing. And, uh, you know, I just saw him last June, uh, and so uh, we all miss Ivan Reitman yeah. greatly because uh, he really, he's up there with our our childhood, quote-unquote, in terms of really making one of the most beloved films of our generation. And I forget how influential he was in taking Ghostbusters and making it in, into what it became. <laughs> yeah. he, he reined in Dan Aykroyd's yeah. wild visions and turned it into something that was uh, uh, filmable yeah. uh, compared to the original idea. Maybe we could just leave it at that. But yeah. I, I got the chance to talk about what Dan Aykroyd's original vision was uh, of uh, Ghostbusters, and it's, it's very far off from what we ultimately got. Yeah, definitely. Uh, another one of my favorites that I think is an underrated movie is Runaway. Um, I always thought that movie was sort of just kind of just put away somewhere and never to be seen again. Um, <laughs> how, how how easy was it getting Gene Simmons to sit down? Uh, Gene Simmons, first of all, I can't believe we have Gene Simmons in our movie and Ivan Reitman and Nicholas Meyer and all the people that we have. It's just amazing. Yeah. Uh, we were really gifted by how many people were, were game to sit down and talk about this stuff. And, uh, you know, you reach out to the various folks hoping that someone will say yes, and Gene Simmons said yes. You know, it's simple as reach out. He was interested in the concept and talking about his favorite movies. And, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, you, you would be surprised. At, uh, I was just so impressed. We all know this about Gene Simmons. You know, Kiss, you know, they're, they're yeah. masters of performance and they're masters of marketing. 
And I think one of the reasons why they're so successful at, at doing what they do, even to this day, is because uh, Gene is a consummate professional. You know, I, I would email him and he'd email me right back. I mean, I, I, I was shocked at how responsive he was when we were arranging this. And, uh, you know, it was just a joy to sit down with him. And, you know, once you sit down with Gene Simmons and talk about movies, it's his conversation that you're on there for the ride. Yeah. He's very, I mean, he's a huge fan of horror. I mean, he, he and sci-fi, I mean, I, I don't think people oh, yeah. really he's know a, that. <laughs> he's, he, he grew up, you know, he, he, he grew up on all the, the monster movies of yore, you know? Yeah. Uh, and the sci-fi, he's just, he's all about, I mean, again, going back to Kiss, you know, and the makeup and yeah. the stage and the pageantry of everything that they do. Um, it's all about the imagination and being larger than life. And uh, he was very inspired by all of these movies of the imagination when he was growing up. I, I love how matter of so fact he, kind of he was... likes to, oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, he kind of likes to pay... He, he, it's a pleasure for him to pay homage to the stuff that really inspired him. Yeah, and and he was so matter of fact about his you know his audition, where it was just like, okay, just you know, look at me like you want to kill me. Okay, you got the job. <laughs> All right. No, well, Michael Crichton wrote and directed Runaway, and uh, I think what's amazing about Runaway is is, is it's it's in, whatever you might think about the movie itself, it, it might be a little clunky and dated at the time, but it was visionary in terms of a lot of the, the machinery and computer. Uh, gadgetry that uh, it's very mundane and runaway. It's just everyday stuff is there. And people just, they, they live their lives and they've got, you know, someone like a robot making dinner in the kitchen, you know, or yeah. uh, flying drone cams, you know, everywhere with the news. Um, it's it's a part of their life every day. And it, it was, some, you, know, face, you know, Facebook and the internet, all that kind of stuff is in that movie you know, in a different name, but it's what we live with today. And it was very prescient in that way. 2010, the movie that, you know, I'm sh- a lot of us were kind of like, wait, they're going to make a sequel to 2001, the greatest science fiction <laughs> film of all time. Um, did it surprise you how um, honest director Peter Hyams was about making the film? It surprised me that Peter Hyams was willing to sit with me to talk about his movies because I hold him in tremendously high regard. Uh, Outland is one of my all-time favorite sci-fi films of the 80s, and yeah. just in general. Uh, we could go, you know, a, a whole tangent on just that in terms of the world building of, of, of Outland. Um, I found Peter Hyams to be incredibly candid and self-effacing and, and smart, and uh, it was just a joy to have him talk about this. And, you know, I think I, I've always thought 2010 was an incredibly accessible film especially in the wake of 2001 where everyone said no you don't make a sequel to this movie because it's it's sci-fi royalty and they're right but 2010 is a great film if you've ever seen it and yeah. it's an incredibly competent film and uh you know it's roy scheider in the lead it, it's just wonderful so yeah the answer is he was incredibly candid and uh the stories that he told were just absolutely wonderful. Yeah. I'm not going to give it away for anybody listening because I want to save it for all of you to watch it because it is. It's really, it's great stuff. You also touched on the space shuttle program, which was, of course, gigantic at that time um, in, in the 1980s. Um, and I have to say it was really touching to see the beautiful Challenger tribute that you did. Um, I think it was, it's, it's as much important to the 80s as, as many things. Um both in his tragedy and also how we came out of that and, and didn't stop. Um, but it also shows you, though, the difference. Um, it also shows you, though, I think, how, um, how that, that you've touched on in the movie, too, is how art imitates life, life imitates art. The space shuttle was very much uh, a, a sort of a, a turning point in the space, in the program. And I'm talking about before the, the disaster. And, uh, you know, from Moonraker on, from the, from the first shuttle being called Enterprise on, uh, I think it touched sci-fi fans in a very important way that made all of this stuff tangible and real and not just fantastic. And uh, the trajectory of how it impacted movies and real life, uh, I think it was a very necessary element to include in the film. So now you've done a five-hour movie on science fiction films. Uh, I have to ask the inevitable. Is there going to be a part two? Well, I would love for there to be a part two, uh, but that's in the hands of, of the, 
people who are either going to respond to this positively or not. You know, yeah. if this film does very well, if word of mouth is strong, if people are encouraged, you know, to purchase this film and own it and watch it again and again to relive the most important things that they found, you know, true to their heart back in the 80s, uh, by all means, we'll make a part two, and I'd love to make a part yeah. two, and I've got material for part two. I'm, I I can only imagine how much material you probably have part two and part three. <laughs> so, uh, speaking of part three, how is, uh, how is In Search of Darkness part three coming along, and wh- what can we expect? Uh, we can expect a deeper dive uh, than we have already in parts one and part two. Part one was kind of the heavy hitters of the genre with some eclectic titles. Part two was, was a much deeper dive uh, with the more sort of uh, straight-to-video titles and international titles. And part three, we're really going deeper. A lot of shows sort of shot on video. Uh, we like to call the underbelly of horror. But there's still a lot of mainstream theatrical releases that we still haven't covered yet. So it's going to be a wonderful mixed bag that, that reflects the, the movies that we really, really, really loved back in that era many of them that we discovered on the VHS shelves at the video store. So now I'm going to get a little philosophical here. Um, you've done now uh, these incredible documentaries, not only on uh, 80s horror, uh, now 80s sci-fi. What would you say as far as their impact goes? I mean, do, do both genres have that same sort of impact culturally, or do you think that they might have had two very different paths, yet still incredibly popular? Well, they're very much alive and well. Um, you know, you think you look at some genres that were were the the key genre that every you know westerns. Every movie, every week, there was a western uh, when westerns were huge. That changed a little bit, you know, when Sputnik flew overhead, and then all of a sudden people wanted to you know look to outer space. But the westerns still prevailed. Um, you know, in terms of genre storytelling, uh, it's not as you know, prevalent. Uh, I love seeing westerns when they're made now, because you don't see them much at, at, at all. But uh, there's so many sci-fi films, and there's so many horror films that are, you know, uh, uh, today. Uh, just so many more. You know, we, we everyone likes to talk about Marvel movies to the point where you love them or hate them. They're they're very much part of our lives now. Um, but if you look at every Marvel movie, it's not only fantasy, it's a huge amount of science fiction uh, in these films, and also with the DC movies. So it's just sort of a hybrid that if, it, if, it, if it's working, more and more people want to do the same kind of thing. So does it have the same impact? Absolutely. Uh, and all these movies owe everything to the movies that we're talking about in terms of the 80s and, and the, some of the films that you know inspired those films. But I mean, if you're, you're talking about Endgame, you know, um, you know, there, I think it's Endgame or is it Infinity War? I can't remember now. But there's, you know, there's jokes about, you know, old-fashioned '80s movies like Empire Strikes Back and, and you know, Alien in 1979 that, that are that are sort of pop culture reference jokes in these movies now. So, you know, the filmmakers who are making these movies and writing these movies, they grew up eating this stuff for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and now they're putting out material that is completely inspired by and trying to be like and trying to take another step further based on all these you know foundational films so yeah huge 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 impact to this day well david as always you and your team just put together an amazing film you you guys just rock it really and all of us out there that are fans are just gobbling this stuff up we we really we appreciate all of the work that you and Robin and Sam and everybody else have done on these films. Uh, congratulations. I, this is going to be a huge success. I know it's going to be. Um, and again, folks, if you want to uh, find out more about the film, go to 80sscifidoc.com. The uh, final pre-order campaign for In Search of Tomorrow is running through March 27th. So if you've not gotten in on this, get on get in on it. It's, it's, it's going to be worth it, I promise you. Um, David, again, thank you so much for taking the time to sit with me and uh, here in my graveyard and talk about your films. It's, it's always one of the highlights of my podcast. So thank you for coming on the show. Uh, look forward to seeing you back here for In Search of Darkness Part 3. Congratulations on the success. Good luck with this film. 
Thank you so much, and I always appreciate your your enthusiasm. I mean, you're clearly a fan yourself, and uh, you know that makes these these chats so much more fun because I could geek out and you understand. So thank you so much for having me, and thanks everyone for paying attention to In Search of Tomorrow. And as I put this interview to rest, uh, I really I I love having David Weiner on this show. Uh, it's just a great conversation. We have uh, a really good time talking uh, about films, his films, and um, these movies, In Search of Tomorrow and In Search of Darkness, Parts 1 and 2, are just fantastic, fantastic documentaries. Uh, again, if you haven't seen In Search of Darkness, Parts 1 or 2, you can go to Shudder, and uh, both are streaming there right now on Shudder. And again, to purchase In Search of Tomorrow, just go to 80sscifidoc.com to pre-order the film. Again, the cutoff is March 27th. And if you're new to the Graveyard Show podcast, uh, I have other interviews that I've done with David for In Search of Darkness, In Search of Darkness Part 2, as well as uh, I've interviewed the uh, creator of both of these series, uh, the executive producer, Robin Block from Creator VC. Uh, I interviewed him as well. And the composers of the soundtrack for both of these films, uh, Jamie Chambers and Don McLennan Jr., otherwise known as Weary Pines. Uh, they were a guest of mine on the Graveyard Show podcast as well. And you know, I always feel bad because I don't mention them enough on this program. You should check out their site and you should uh, definitely uh, buy their soundtracks. If you're fans of Synthwave, if you love the soundtracks to these movies, and I know there's a huge, huge following of Synthwave out there, uh, you can go to wearypines.com. That's W-E-A-R-Y-P-I-N-E-S.com. Wearypines.com. Check out their site. Check out their music. Uh, Awesome, awesome uh, musicians, composers, and um, show them some love. Pick up a CD of theirs or buy some MP3s of theirs. Um, so you have 80 sci-fi doc for the movie. You have wearypines.com for the soundtrack. There you go. Well, this has been a very busy March for me since I was MIA in February. So you have the three podcasts now that I've dropped uh, this month, uh, all within a week of each other. I swear I would never go back to my old format of doing a weekly podcast. And here I am breaking that rule here in March. But these, uh, these podcasts were timely. They had to come out uh, this month. And certainly uh, for the pre-order of In Search of Tomorrow, I want to get both of those up. And, of course, the first podcast of this month with Mickey Keating, the writer and director of the new film, Off Season. Uh, the film was just coming out. I want to make sure that got out uh, as well for all of you to catch his film, uh, which you can find on VOD, digital, and uh, in theaters. And that leads me to my fourth production that I uh, uploaded this month, which is, of course, the latest episode of Catacombs of Horror, which is my video program that I produce just for online. You can find it on the Graveyard Show Podcast's YouTube channel, among other places. This latest edition of Catacombs of Horror are my favorite scenes from the movie Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers. And I also discuss a missed opportunity that the Halloween series um, failed to follow up on with the following movies. And I also discuss a few firsts with Halloween 4 that were not seen in the Halloween series up to that point, as well as why I think Halloween 4 is the most important film since the original in the series. Not the best, but the most important. So check that out. Catacombs of Horror, the latest edition. Uh, favorite scenes from Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers, as well as a missed opportunity with the Halloween series. And you can also catch the previous two editions as well. Uh, my favorite scenes from the 1970 vampire film Count Yorga Vampire, as well as, well, David Weiner joined me on the very first edition of Catacombs of Horror. He and I talked about what we thought best represented 1980s horror in four different categories. So you can check out Catacombs of Horror on the Graveyard Show Podcast YouTube channel. And um, also, if you are not a subscriber to the YouTube channel, you may want to consider doing that because I am going to be uploading stuff just for uh, online over these next few weeks. And uh, it'll 
probably be uploaded before any of my other podcasts kind of discuss it. So if you want to catch things as they get uploaded, uh, I highly suggest you subscribe to uh, the Graveyard Show podcast on YouTube if you haven't already. If you have, thank you. And also, if you are a uh, regular listener here on the Graveyard Show podcast, if you can, please just uh, rate the podcast on whatever um, podcasting site you use. I would really appreciate that. So busy March for me, uh, coming off of that very quiet February. Uh, As I mentioned previously, the month of February was me working on Catacombs of Horror. So um, I was working on something. It just didn't get... Uh, uploaded. <laughs> uh, took a little longer than I thought it was going to. Uh, 48 minutes. Uh, it, t- it took some time to put together, but a uh, uh, heck of a good March, I think, uh, making up for that lost February. And if you'd like to reach out to the program, you can do so at the email address gyspodcast at gmail.com. That's caretakerisawesome at gmail.com. Thoughts, comments, suggestions. Um, love to hear from you and of course if you have any comments that you'd like to leave after watching any of the catacombs of horror please do so i do reply to them Uh, i'm pretty timely with them too usually when i see a comment i try to reply to them quickly because um well the memory is not what it used to be (laughs) and i feel like it's just it's just something i should do anyway since you've taken the time to comment on on my video i feel like i should be timely with the reply as well so i do um i do reply pretty quickly Uh, when uh, you leave comments on YouTube. And of course, I always appreciate hearing from all of you on YouTube as well. On the next podcast, my guest is going to be the co-writer and director of the new horror film, The Exorcism of God. Alejandro Hidalgo will be here to talk about his new film, which is going to be in theaters, on digital, and on demand starting March 11th. All right, that's going to do it for me. Uh, You can find the Graveyard Show podcast anywhere podcasts exist. And as I mentioned uh, many times already, the YouTube channel as well, Graveyard Show Podcast. Have a great rest of your March. I will see you again in April. And as you exit the graveyard, I would like to remind you to please lock the gate behind you. We wouldn't want anyone to get out. Until next time. (laughs) 